This is Rising Up with Sonali, and I'm your host, Sonali Kolhatkar. You can watch this program on Free Speech TV and listen to it on community and independent radio stations nationwide. Now that Elon Musk has bought Twitter, one of the world's largest social media platforms, and begun removing content controls, Apple Corporation is considering not offering Twitter through its App Store because of standards violations. Mr. Musk has responded by asking, does Apple hate free speech? In doing so, he has demonstrated a classic misunderstanding of the First Amendment and a common weaponizing of the term free speech to obscure attacks on the rights of minorities and others. In a new book called You Can't Always Say What You Want, The Paradox of Free Speech, author and language expert Dennis Barron says, quote, two forces threaten free speech in America, people who assert their free speech rights in order to suppress the speech of others, and people who exercise their right to bear arms to silence whoever they do not like. Indeed, as the New York Times recently reported, armed Americans, often pushing a right-wing agenda, are increasingly using open-carry laws to intimidate opponents and shut down debate. Dennis Barron is a professor emeritus of English at the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign. He's a frequent commentator on language issues in the national media and has written a number of books, including What's Your Pronoun? His latest book, as I mentioned, is You Can't Always Say What You Want, The Paradox of Free Speech. Welcome to the program, Dennis. Hi. Um, great to be here, Sonali. So first, let's talk about um, this common misunderstanding. I'm sort of quoted Elon Musk uh, accusing Apple of hating free speech because they were, you know, choosing to apply their own standards. What is Mr. Musk getting wrong? He has called himself a free speech absolution, absolutist in the past, uh, but he seems to not quite get it, right? Well, uh, people get confused about um, the the legal aspects of free speech, which are covered by the First Amendment, and the social aspects of free speech. Uh, since since language and speech are are social phenomena, they are always subject to the social controls that that create a social interaction that underlie our all our our interactions whether it's in a family or in a school or in a a work setting or in a group of friends or in a club or a political organization there are sometimes spoken and often unspoken rules about what you can and can't say what you know the the kind of filters that we apply so that we don't all you know jabber aimlessly uh you know when we're sitting on the bus and and have people staring at us or stand up on street corners and announce the end of the world and expect everybody to engage us and 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 and, and there there are just certain things that that you don't do and 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 so when when we're dealing with government issues the first amendment says the government in most cases can't uh, step in and pre-censor what you say and even there uh, there are certain aspects of speech that are always not covered that are never covered by the first amendment uh, obscene speech threats defamation incitement to riot those things are not protected by by any any kind of government regulation uh the 
the government can't stop you from saying something political or from uh, spouting hate speech, for example. But that doesn't save you from the consequences of what you say. Your audience can censor you, can turn you off, can cancel you, if you want to use that term, can can simply refuse to listen to you, or can fight back and, and say, here's where you're wrong. So it seems these days that there is a sleight of hand that those who accuse you know, others of, of violating their free speech rights tend to use um, that uh, basically what they really mean is I should be able to say whatever I want to say and um, no one has the right to stop me. And often, unfortunately, the same people who are actually accusing others of violating their free speech rights are busy shutting down speech. Um, we see conservatives banning books. Let's talk about that aspect of it. Banning books is very much, uh, it seems, um, a way to socially control the right to free speech, right? Absolutely, absolutely. You, you get in the name of free speech, at, at, at the moment, it's mostly mostly on the conservative side, the, the ultra-right wing or even the moderately right wing saying, well, no, you can't read this book, you can't say these words in schools, uh, in the name of free speech, we're going to silence you. Uh, how weird is that? And so what does that actually mean for those who are trying to find clarity on the issue of free speech? I mean, the language matters, and I know you're a language expert. So when we talk about free speech, what should be first and foremost, um, you know, in, in our minds when we when because we all do want the right to protect that right. And in fact, the United States is quite unique in uh, preserving the right and upholding the right to free speech. It is um, it has set the standard around the world in terms of being, you know, people being able to say what they want to say generally, generally without uh, fear of uh, being chastised for it or attacked for it or sanctioned for it. It's sort of that has varied over history, though, right? <laughs> right, right. Uh, the U.S. is is, is the only uh, one of the liberal democracies that has a, a kind of First Amendment protection uh, saying that the government cannot interfere uh, with your speech of Europe, uh, the EU, uh, the United Kingdom, Australia, Canada, uh, New Zealand, other other uh, liberal democracies tend to leak in their legal systems tend to balance the right to speak with the right to be protected from hateful, racist, sexist, destructive, intimidating speech. And uh, this often requires uh, judgment on a case-by-case -case basis. It gets very complicated when you're dealing with social media where you have millions and millions of posts every day all around the world, and the social media companies are required to comply with local laws. Laws in the U.S. are different from the laws in the U.K., are different from the laws in China, for example, where speech is much, much more strictly regulated online, uh, much more closely monitored, and much more rapidly shut down. Uh, so it, it, it becomes very complex uh, when you're looking at it on a global scale and you're trying to run a company like Twitter, which 
has a, a, a presence around the globe, not just in the U.S. So whatever Elon Musk wants to uh, do in terms of free speech in in the U.S. won't necessarily fly in uh, the U.K. or the EU. And he's having a lot of trouble just in the U.S. where advertisers are saying, no, no, well, we don't approve of, of, of some of the stuff that you're doing and we're going to use our economic pressure because money talks. Money is a form of speech, as the Supreme Court told us in Citizens United, and therefore it can be used as uh, to apply pressure as well as, as words. So the uh, rise of social media seems to have really muddied the waters because it seems as though often this is the way in which a majority of people are communicating these days. We've never really had the, this kind of far-reaching ability to communicate with this many people this easily, perhaps in the world's history. I mean, definitely in the world's history. Exactly. Um, exactly. It, it is a revolutionary means of communication, mass communication, peer-to-peer -peer mass communication, not one-way communication as, say, television is. Um, and, and it seems as though our laws have not kept up with it. Certainly, the laws in the United States seem to not have kept up with how social media works. And therein lies a significant part of the problem. Exactly. And every time there's a revolution in communication, so if we put this in a historical perspective, when the printing press came online, of course, very, very few people wrote, very few people were able to read, but uh, the printing press was a kind of game changer at the time. And so as soon as people started picking up books, uh, governments, uh, religious organizations uh, perked up their heads and, and said, hey, we ought to control this. We ought to create licenses. We ought to decide who can write and who can read. Now, once we get to the age of the internet, everybody can write and everybody can read so long as they have access to an online platform of some kind. It doesn't necessarily cost money. In the US, you can go to a public library and get online uh, at, at no cost to yourself. So everybody's a writer, everybody's a reader, uh, everybody can communicate whatever they want to the masses. And the goal is to try to create an audience, to try to get people to listen to you, or to say, oh, what a great picture of your cat. Uh, or, you know, yeah, I hate uh, minorities too. You know, there are these two extremes. And so social media companies are in the weird position of saying, well, we need to set up some rules of engagement. What can people say? And are the things that we don't want them to say? On, on our social media site. This is independent of the law. This is the organization, the business organization, making business decisions about what can and can't be communicated. And when you're dealing with millions and millions of posts every day, human eyes can't look at each post and say, yeah, this is this meets our standards, this one doesn't. So they use algorithms. The algorithms don't work very well. They approve things that probably don't meet the standards of the terms of service. Uh, 
Uh, they reject things that do meet the terms. Uh, there's a lot of false positives, a lot of false negatives, and that creates problems for users too. So there's another uh, huge threat to uh, free speech other than um, banning of books. And yes. this one is the Second Amendment. Uh, but the Second Amendment is an, is much older than social media or much older <laughs> than the current iteration of the, the GOP. Um, how have armed groups and those who are, you know, who call themselves Second Amendment activists, the, the, the sort of gun proliferators, how do they threaten free speech today, even as they say that their own free speech is being attacked? Well, so it's it it if if you look at the the way the Constitution gets interpreted, and that includes the amendments, no part of the Constitution is supposed to take precedence over any other part. Every every clause, every every uh, standard that the Constitution sets is equal to the others. So the First Amendment guarantees freedom of speech and and it also guarantees freedom of the press and freedom of the religion it really has five complicated parts and i'm i'm basically talking about the speech part not the religion part the second amendment guarantees the right to keep and bear arms and since uh 2008 when the supreme court actually interpreted for the first time what the second amendment is supposed to mean they said it means uh, it supports the individual right to have arms in 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 the case in question, Heller uh, District of Columbia versus Heller. It was the right to possess handguns as defensive weapons. Uh, more recently, this past year in New York State Rifle and Pistol Association v. Bruin, the court ruled that. Uh, that right can't be fettered by uh, requirements imposed by the state that the New York State basically had a gun licensing law that said you had to say why you needed a gun in order to get a license. And the Supreme Court said, you know, you don't have to say why you need a gun. All you have to do is say, I want a gun, and they have to approve it unless you or a convicted felon or have uh, mental illness issues or, or some other way that you are disqualified from owning a gun. So that means more and more people are walking around with guns in more and more states. And if they come to uh, a rally or just, uh, you know, somebody with a gun is in discussion, so-called discussion with somebody without a gun, the person who is unarmed is going to be a lot more careful about what they're saying because guns have a way of shutting us up. I mean, they sort of change the power dynamic, don't they? <laughs> In a very you know, visible way. You got a gun, you're saying, oh, I, I, I mean, do you no harm? How do I know that? Uh, I'm, I'm, you, you, know, don't wanna, oh, you don't want to wait to find out. <laughs> yeah, I'm not, I'm not going to find out. I, I, I think, you know, yeah, yeah. Uh, we don't want no trouble here. You know, uh, we're we're okay. You know, okay. I I'll just shut up. I'll, and 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 I'm going on my on my way. 
And so then, uh, the, you know, we, while those who uh, walk around with guns, they have a right to, uh, to, to arm themselves, uh, they often use the term, the rhetoric of self-defense, right, to, yeah. to uh, justify this behavior. Um, right. And so then you get this kind of clash between these fundamental rights. Um, but a bullhorn can't kill anybody, a gun can. And well, that's, a, that's, a, that's exactly the point, you know. Uh, sure, words can do a lot of damage, but really uh, in, in the, at the interface of words and guns, the words tend to lose, guns tend to win. There's a lot of discussion around what the framers of the Constitution meant, what the authors of the amendments meant when they wrote these texts that we are trying to abide by. And then, of course, there's obviously all of the legal issues. And then you say at the outset that you're not a lawyer, you're not writing about legal arguments as much as about the sort of social aspects of these of these um, rights that we have. But uh, but it's important, right, that the citizens of the state understand the Constitution understand the interpretation of the amendments and the, the rights that they do have. Do you think that our media institutions do a good enough job of explaining the parameters of free speech, explaining the parameters of gun ownership? Well, the media tries, I think. Uh, sometimes they give a little more weight to, to the those who are trying to suppress speech, then, then I'm comfortable with. I don't think the media takes a strong enough stand uh, on this. I don't think anybody in the founding era would have approved of people walking around with AK-47s. I don't think uh, that's what they had in mind at all. I think, in fact, the Second Amendment is very clearly drafted to refer to gun ownership or weapon ownership in the context of military service. It is in the context not of individual self-defense, but in the context of protecting the community, the state, the nation, from both external and internal dissent. The Second Amendment is not, as, as one constitutional scholar has said, a suicide pact. And yet the court and the supporters of, of gun rights are treating it that way. They're treating it as, a, let's all go around and carry guns and then everybody will be so much safer and we won't, uh, but what's happening is people are shooting each other uh, or people are shooting other people. They're shooting themselves in the foot. They are having their guns stolen and being used in the commission of crimes. Uh, it, 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 the, the outcome is not at all positive. I don't see what the, what the, what's the advantage. No other civilized nation in the world, no other liberal democracy takes the same view of guns as we do. Uh, Australia used to be a, a fairly liberal uh, country in, in terms of gun control, but they had one mass shooting uh, a number of years ago, and practically overnight they banned all kinds of indiv individual possession of firearms, and the people complied. And the mass shootings went down. 
I mean, oh. almost completely eradicated, right, in, in uh, Australia. Absolutely. Uh, it's very rare to get a mass shooting in Japan, in the UK, in in most of the EU countries. Uh, it just Although their fascist movements are now looking at the US and, and, and unfortunately, oh, yeah. oh, you know, yeah, we, trying to copy some of the, the violence here. It's, it's a very bad model to present the world. Uh, so uh, often these issues, these clashes around who has the right to do what, say what, um, get adjudicated and end up uh, climbing all the way to the Supreme Court. And you've cited many decisions in your book historically over the years. Today we have a supermajority conservative Supreme Court. It seems as though that may not be a very good thing. It's likely not to be a very good thing to actually preserve free speech rights and human rights if we're talking about guns, right? That's, that's exactly right. It, 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 the prospects for the future are more of the same or maybe even getting worse. So what do we do? I mean, that's, that's the question. I wish I knew. I wish I had, a, had a, 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 a solution to all this other than to say we, we need to have more rational um, gun legislation and we need uh, to take a stand against the kind of decisions uh, that the court has been handing down in order to protect the citizens, uh, the residents uh, of the country. It's not good for speech. It's, it's not good for staying alive. And how have, um, you know, we didn't get to this part of uh, your book, but how have the, uh, the, the attacks on free speech by the right actually been often veiled attacks on minorities, on communities of color? You know, the, there's a lot of uh, hue and cry around uh, stop wokeness, uh, the, you know, racial minorities are going too far, sexual minorities are going too far, they want everybody to be queer and black and uh, transgender and, and, and you know, they're, they're upset about the idea of uh, people identifying their pronouns. I know you wrote a whole book around finding gender neutral language. Uh, but mm -hmm. basically, uh, how do you view these attacks by the right who claim to be free speech champions um and who are basically going after minorities right they're they're uh stoking prejudice they are uh fanning a kind of moral panic about a whole variety of issues any any issue that they see is going to get them some support and have as a consequence the suppression of minority speech rights minority human rights whether it's racial, gender, uh, the rights of, of uh, immigrants, the rights of people trying to come to the United States, trying to survive in the United States, the rights of the poor, the rights of uh, those who historically have not had either a speech platform uh, uh, of any kind of strength or or a, 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 a collection of legal rights that they could fall back on. They're trying to take away all the props that, that are in, uh, in place that are possible to, to let people get ahead, to let people have a voice, to let people be included. They are 
practicing a kind of policy of exclusion rather than inclusion. Well, Dennis, I want to thank you so much for joining us today and for uh, writing a book that attempts to tease apart these issues that often get so misunderstood. Good luck to you and thanks for being our guest. Thank you very much. My guest has been Dennis Barron, Emeritus Professor of English at the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign. He's a frequent commentator on language issues, and he has written books like What's Your Pronoun? and the latest we've just been discussing called You Can't Always Say What You Want, The Paradox of Free Speech. I'm Sonali Kolhatkar. You can access this and other interviews on our website, risingupwithsonali.com, by becoming a subscriber. Find our audio podcast on iTunes and Spotify, and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Are You With Sonali? Ali.